This program is brought to you by Preserve Gold, the number one precious metals IRA provider. Call 855-962-3322. Apple source code and materials used in ballistic missiles those secrets could soon fall into Beijing's hands. The Justice Department announcing criminal cases against individuals allegedly moving U.S. tech secrets to foreign adversaries like China. Those facing charges found living in California and hiding out in China. Will the recent slew of criminal charges stem the flow of intellectual property theft? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. The Justice Department announcing five criminal cases. Those involved are accused of moving U.S. technology to China, Iran, and Russia. As for what's at stake, Apple source code, plus the high-tech material that's used in intercontinental ballistic missiles and nuclear submarines. NTD's David Lamb has the details. The Justice Department revealed five criminal cases Tuesday tracing the illegal flow of sensitive technology, including Apple's software code for self-driving cars and materials used for missiles to foreign adversaries like Russia, China, and Iran. Two of the five cases involve dismantling alleged procurement networks created to help the Russian military and intelligence services obtain sensitive technologies in violation of U.S. export control laws. In another case, a former software engineer from Apple was accused of stealing proprietary data before his last day at the company in 2018. Then, investigators searched Weibo Wang's home and found Apple's source code on his devices. He flew to China after. Unfortunately, the same evening as that search warrant was uh, served, um, at approximately 8.34 that evening, he was able to purchase a one-way ticket and fly out that same night at 11.55, as alleged in the indictment. The 35-year-old engineer Wang accepted a U.S.-based job with a Chinese company working to develop self-driving cars before resigning from Apple. Some of the alleged theft dates back several years, but officials are drawing attention now to highlight the work of a task force created this year to disrupt the transfer of goods to foreign countries. The suspect involved in the Apple data theft faces up to 10 years in prison and a $250,000 fine or twice the amount of his gain for each count of theft. And additionally, two Russian nationals were arrested for scheming to send aircraft parts to Russian companies. David Lamb, NTD News, California. Beyond Apple's source codes, the high-tech materials used in ballistic missiles are also in the spotlight. The DOJ also announced another criminal case linked to a Chinese national named Xiang Jiangqiao. U.S. prosecutors saying Chiao allegedly sent isostatic graphite to Iran in violation of U.S. sanctions. Isostatic graphite is used in the nose tip of intercontinental ballistic missiles. The DOJ also charged Chiao with money laundering and bank fraud. Officials say Chiao is currently hiding out in China. Another criminal case involves California resident Li Ming Li. Authorities arrested Li in early May. He's charged with allegedly stealing sensitive technology from former employers and using it to market his own company in China. Li allegedly stole technology used for making nuclear submarines and military aircraft. 
A new report leaked from the Pentagon. The document is shedding light on the debate over the origins of COVID-19 and how the agency handled it. The May 2020 report dismantles the natural origin study led by Dr. Anthony Fauci. Let's zoom in. A working paper by researchers at the Department of Defense was leaked to the public on Monday. It's called Critical Analysis of Anderson et al., the proximal origin of SARS-CoV-2. The paper is dated May 26, 2020. The report forensically dismantles the proximal origin study. Dr. Anthony Fauci prompted that study and used it to argue that the COVID-19 virus had come from nature and not from a lab in Wuhan, China. Here's Fauci at a White House press briefing in April 2020. There was a study uh, recently that we can make available to you where a, a group of highly qualified evolutionary virologists looked at the sequences there and the sequences in uh, bats as they evolve. And the mutations that it took to get to the point where it is now is totally consistent with a jump of a species from an animal to a human. Commander Jean-Paul Chrétien, a Navy doctor working at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and Dr. Robert Cutlip, a research scientist at the Defense Intelligence Agency, authored the Pentagon report. They concluded the natural origin case made in proximal origin are based not on scientific analysis, but on unwarranted assumptions. The existence of this internal Pentagon paper is crucial. An Epoch Times analysis says it proves government officials were aware in the early months of the pandemic there was no evidence in support of a natural origin theory. Proximal origin was the media's go-to authority for the natural origin theory. It also became the most read article on COVID-19 and one of the most cited academic papers of all time. China refuses to be called a developed nation. This as Washington looks to strip China of its developing country status. Experts break down the tangible benefits Beijing reaps from that tag. A Chinese foreign spokesperson rejected the title of developed country last week, saying the label the U.S. wants to put on China won't stick. He added, China's per capita GDP last year came in at less than $13,000, only one-sixth of the U.S. level. Yet, such statements seem to defy Beijing's propaganda at home. The regime has been trumpeting its rise from poverty to so-called modest prosperity. In this context, it's contradictory to still call itself a developing country. Another commentator says the communist regime is cashing in on the duality of its identity. They want the world to believe that under Xi Jinping, China has become the most powerful country on earth and will soon overtake the U.S. as the world's largest economy. On the other hand, with the title of developing country, it seeks to reap economic benefits from the international community. What privileges are granted to a developing China? The United Nations offers various discounts to the country in its regular budget contribution. According to a Heritage Foundation report, these discounts cut China's dues by nearly $50 million in 2023. And through its WTO membership, China maintains its most favored nation status with countries like the U.S. That means access to larger markets, higher subsidies, and lower tariff rates. The World Bank designates China as a middle-income country. Until 2025, Beijing can still receive its low-interest loans. The amount? Up to $1.5 billion per year. 
Besides that, China also refused to pay into the UN's Climate Loss and Damage Fund for developing countries. Instead, Beijing argued that it should become a recipient of the payments. China is now the largest greenhouse gas emitter, generating nearly one-third of the world's carbon dioxide each year. That figure is more than all other developing countries combined. Meanwhile, Beijing is leveraging money to grow its political influence. Over the decade its Belt and Road Initiative has been operating, the Chinese regime has funneled some $1 trillion to nearly 150 countries, making itself the world's largest official creditor. A president and prime minister coming to an agreement on Wednesday. South Korea's Yoon Suk-yeol and Canada's Justin Trudeau confirmed they would improve cooperation and continue joint efforts to fend off North Korea's nuclear threats. Trudeau arrived in Seoul Tuesday. It's the first time in nine years that a Canadian leader traveled to the nation. There, they signed a memorandum of understanding on critical mineral supply chains, the clean energy transition and energy security. The agreement aims to develop new technology, both to improve their economies and position them as competitors in the race for electric cars. China currently dominates the market for the critical minerals used to make electric vehicle batteries. Russia is also a major player. The two countries also condemned North Korea's ballistic missile and nuclear programs. They urged Pyongyang to return to dialogue. America's domestic politics spilling over into geopolitics. President Biden heading to Japan for the Group of Seven or G7 summit. But he's cutting his trip short due to continuing talks about the debt limit. The White House announced late Tuesday Biden will miss his visit to Papua New Guinea. It was to be the first ever visit by a U.S. president. Biden was set to sign two security agreements while there to boost support among Pacific Island nations to counter Beijing. Biden will also miss a stop in Australia. Following the announcement, Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese canceled the planned Quad Summit. The Quad Alliance is a diplomatic partnership between the U.S., Australia, Japan and India. The Quad leaders meeting uh, will not be going ahead in Sydney next week. Uh, we, though, will be uh, having that discussion between Quad leaders in Japan. As for what this latest development means for the region, the Sydney Morning Herald calls it a win for Chinese leader Xi Jinping, saying China's president for life, meanwhile, will be giddy with delight at the summit falling into disarray. On the other hand, both Australia and the U.S. have indicated plans to reschedule, but no date has been set so far. Another Taiwan official setting foot on U.S. soil. The president of Taiwan's parliament, Yoshi Kun, visited the U.S. Capitol on Tuesday. His position is the equivalent of the U.S. House Speaker. Yu was set to meet with members of the House Committee on Competition with China in an effort to bolster economic and security ties with the U.S. The committee's chairman, Mike Gallagher, said that the U.S. should arm Taiwan to the teeth to counter China's aggression in the region. Worth noting, Yo was also spotted entering House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's office, though McCarthy claimed that the two did not meet up. In a speech at the Hudson Institute, Yo said that the Chinese Communist Party wants to see the East rise and the West decline, suggesting the regime sees Taiwan as the stepping stone to global dominance. He also urged the West to step in to help ensure the island's safety. 
The trip comes as the Biden administration plans a $500 million arms package for Taiwan. Despite never having ruled Taiwan, the Chinese Communist Party sees the island as part of its own territory. The regime vehemently opposes any diplomatic ties between the West and Taiwan. In April, China staged military drills in the Taiwan Strait in a way to retaliate against Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen for meeting with U.S. House Speaker McCarthy in California. More support for Taiwan is on its way, this time coming from Britain. Former Prime Minister Liz Truss is visiting the island. She says the West needs to show unwavering support for Taiwan and avoid appeasing China. Her trip comes amid the worst relations between the UK and China in decades. Let's take a closer look. Truss is the first former British Prime Minister to visit Taiwan since Margaret Thatcher in the 1990s. In his recent visit to China, French President Emmanuel Macron tried to distance Europe from any involvement in a conflict over Taiwan. But Truss says, It's completely irresponsible for European nations to wash their hands of Taiwan on the grounds that it's a long way away or it's not a core part of our concerns. Truss said China was trying to use its global economic clout to gain dominance and undertake the biggest military buildup in peacetime history. However, she said many in the West chose to appease China because they don't want another Cold War. The British Foreign Secretary said last month it would be a mistake to isolate Beijing. Truss represents a hawkish wing of the governing Conservative Party that opposes the British government's approach to China. This is because there are still too many in the West who are trying to cling on to the idea that we can somehow cooperate with China on issues like climate change as if there's nothing wrong. Trust called on allies to step up economic engagement against China and make sure Taiwan has defensive capabilities. A new report says the U.S. and the U.K. should focus on strengthening ties. That's to counter the threat from the Chinese Communist Party. The report comes from foreign policy think tank the Henry Jackson Society. Here's what its author told our U.K. correspondent Jane Wuerl about Taiwan. How real is the threat to Taiwan? It is very real. But it is not imminent and it is completely preventable. Uh, China is determined to have close to military parity with the United States by 2027. Uh, they've been developing, they plan on uh, almost quadrupling their nuclear warhead stockpile. The United States and the United Kingdom, if they are determined to help secure the Taiwan Strait, prevent uh, China from forcibly disrupting the status quo in Taiwan, must modernize their militaries that will require increased defense spending. I, in my report, I suggested uh, an increase in defense spending to close to Cold War levels as a percentage of GDP. He says AUKUS, that's the security partnership between the United States, United Kingdom and Australia, could act as a counterbalance to the Chinese regime's threat, both in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. Staying on Liz Truss's visit to Taiwan, NTD's London correspondent Malcolm Hudson met with a UK politician who said Truss's idea of an economic NATO is a good one. Here's more on that. Speaking in Taiwan, former Prime Minister Liz Truss warned of the threats China poses to the island nation and the world. She urged Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to deliver on the pledges he made to clamp down on China. British politician Baroness D'Souza said the mechanisms Trust proposed, such as an economic NATO against China, were a good idea. 
And she talks about sort of having um, um, sort of less uh, dependence on China and preparing for that um, by actually looking far ahead, which is something that China does. But I think that here in the UK and possibly in many sort of democracies that um, we have what we might call short-term government. D'Souza is a member of the House of Lords in Britain, the equivalent of the Senate in the US. She said Western democracies don't have long-term thinking in the same way China does. Cooperation between nations should be part of the UK strategy and indeed the strategy of many other nations that have to deal with China but also recognise the human rights abuses and, and other sort of bids for power that it's making. The Chinese embassy in Britain has criticised Truss's speech as a dangerous political show and said her action would harm the UK. D'Souza said it's a predictable response from the CCP. There is no real evidence that these kind of um, events which speak out against China actually result in economic damage to the trading relationship between two countries. D'Souza said Truss's aim may have been to prompt the UK to have a more coordinated China strategy. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News London. Coming up, what's the fallout of President Biden cancelling stops in Papua New Guinea and Australia? Quite frankly, uh, not going to Papua New Guinea is significant. We have a potential base developing there on Manus Island. It was offered several years ago, actually, uh, and now that's coming forward to fruition. Having the president go there would basically cinch it and signal a return of the United States to the Pacific. We hear from Brent Sadler, former Pentagon Navy staff member and senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation on naval warfare and advanced technology for more. That's coming up after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. How does U.S. naval power shape up against China? We hear from Brent Sadler, retired U.S. Navy captain and former Pentagon Navy staff member. He's also a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation on naval warfare and advanced technology. What's his take on whether the U.S. can face both Russia and China at the same time and what China's growing presence in the South China Sea means for us? Let's zoom in. Brent Sadler, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Uh, thank you for having me on. President Biden is going to Tokyo today for the G7 summit, and he is shortening his trip. He's not going mm -hmm. to Papua New Guinea. What do you make of that? I think it's bad. He should, he should stick to the trip. Uh, but unfortunately, the budget discussion negotiations, uh, he and the White House has allowed this to kind of become uh, an either-or decision, and it's unfortunate. He needs to do both, quite frankly. Uh, not going to Papua New Guinea is significant. We have a potential base developing there on Manus Island. It was offered several years ago, actually, uh, and now that's coming forward to fruition. Having the president go there would basically cinch it and signal a return of the United States to the Pacific. And President Biden is also canceling his trip to Australia. And so in lieu of that, the Quad Summit is also being stopped. How important is the Quad in terms of countering Beijing? Well, I think the quad, the, the, the secret ingredient is India's uh, involvement more aggressively than, in, than we've seen years past. And the trigger for that was Chinese intrusions and violence. Actually, they killed a, a large number, well, a dozen or so Indian soldiers over the last couple of years on border skirmishes. So the Indians are feeling the heat from China, and that's really motivated them to take the quad serious. Uh, the quad's been a slow-moving pro, uh, program. It'll continue to be slow-moving. 
uh, it'll frustrate our, our, our leaders here in D.C., but I think you can go slow and still have success and keep the pressure that Quad will apply on China. Uh, likewise, with the Australians, you have AUKUS. You had just recently, back in March, you had the prime ministers from UK and Australia and the president meet in, in uh, San Diego to announce the next phase of this nuclear submarine deal. So I think those two, that stop actually is not going to not going to lose a lot on that uh, as long as they come back to it in the immediate future before the end of the year. Brent, you recently published a book titled U.S. Naval Power in the 21st Century, A New Strategy for Facing the Chinese and Russian Threat. How do we face this threat? Know yourself, know your enemies, and more likely be able to be successful. And where that advantage is against those two is at sea. It's also where we can actually engage the most countries and the most economic markets that we need to sustain our own prosperity and our own security and do it in a way that's very nimble and very very responsive, but also in a way that we can take the initiative away from the Chinese Communist Party and things like the Belt and Road Initiative. And on that note, Brent, I think there's been talks by State Secretary Antony Blinken that we're not prepared to fight two fronts at the same time. Is the U.S. ready to handle both Russia and China if it came down to it? Well, I think the war in Ukraine is a bad move on Putin's part for a lot of reasons, strategically. Uh, he's bogged down, his military is being like chewed up, mostly his air force, but most notably his army. But his navy is still active. So certainly on the naval front, we have to be aware and ready to respond. Uh, they, they do send out their ships in the long overseas deployments into the Atlantic, the Indian Ocean, and the Pacific. So the question is, is it going to be a two-front war? I think it is already. And the other part of it is, Yes, we can and we must be able to do both. And in terms of that presence, how would that play out? Where would we see these ships? Well, so the so we can't be everywhere all the time, but you need to tailor your military, your naval force, and that's maritime, so it's commercial shipping, it's your Coast Guard, it's also the U.S. Navy most, most visibly. Uh, and so you have to tailor your forces and you have to focus your military, your naval forces, where you can get the largest strategic impact. And so there's two decisive theaters that really get inside Beijing and Moscow's strategic thinking, an imperative that they have to focus in on. And you draw them to the Eastern Mediterranean, which includes the Black Sea, and then South China Sea. Now that's the peacetime competition. The most dangerous wartime scenario that we need to be ready for is a fight over Taiwan. And in terms of that, just with the South China Sea, we're already seeing a standoff happening between Vietnam and China right now over mm. oil drilling. Would the U.S. get involved in something like that? Well, one of, the, one of the really interesting series of events on this topic in the South China Sea played out back in 2020. It was the West Kapala crisis. And so this was an oil survey ship that was chartered by Malaysia. They get a lot of, a lot of revenues uh, from their, the seabed resources from oil. Uh, much like the Vietnamese that are going through this right now. And the U.S. at the time, in a very unique uh, behavior, uh, actually had naval forces nearby, not like right next to the survey vessel, which was being harassed by Chinese maritime militia and the Chinese Coast Guard, but close enough that the Chinese knew that we were there. And interestingly, and a first that I was aware of in 30-year career, you had the Seventh Fleet commander, a three-star admiral, explicitly say that our presence was also as an assurance to our partners as they pursue their rightful economic interest. And that resonated. 
A couple months later, you had the Secretary of State say that China's claims to the South China Sea are illegal, not just not justified, but illegal. And the region responded positively. So I would hope that as things play out now and with Vietnam and the Chinese over disputed uh, rights in seabed in the South China Sea, that the United States would use a similar approach. Brent Sadler, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.